it's something of a commonplace that human beings with their wits about them are by nature moral agents. And contemporary mainstream Anglophone philosophy, drawing, I think, more from Immanuel Kant than from Aristotle, moral agents are understood as those agents who have the capacity wow, to um, know the better and choose the worse. That's what we can do. They're morally accountable for their actions and their decisions. They have reason, they have free will. The thought that only a creature capable of between right and wrong and of straying in spite of this knowledge gets credit for doing as it should. That's kind of the core thought here. The faintly neo-Kantian strain intersects with neo-Aristotelian work in the insistence that the fact that we're essentially rational animals and are free to we've got efficacious practical reason, we act as we judge appropriate, is what makes morality at once possible and problematic for us. If I understand us, Thomas neo-Aristotelians have a distinctive understanding of the link between morality and humanity, in part because we Thomists have a different understanding of the ultimate end or highest good for humans, and in part because we understand that human nature, as we know, enjoy, and suffered it, is disordered by original sin. And I'm going to just be reading you chunks of this paper. Um, so I, it opens by discussing the ways in which our nature makes morality possible for us. Then I'll have a look at how morality is nevertheless problematic for us. And finally, I'll think a little bit about morality in our final end. Aquinas takes it that we are by nature intellectual animals. Now what Aquinas means by intellectual is not exactly the same as what contemporary Anglophone philosophers mean by rational, but there's some overlap. An intellectual animal is necessarily rational. That is, it operates by means of discursive reason. Um, and only a creature with sensitive powers can operate by means of discursive reason. As an Aristotelian might put it, we are the chatty animals. For contemporary Anglophone philosophers, explaining how rational nature and animality work together is difficult. In a recent essay, Matt Boyle argues against what he calls additive theories of rationality and in favor of the transformative view of rationality he finds sketched by John McDowell and others. Additive theories hold that we share some cognitive and cognitive capacities with non-rational animals, but that an extra capacity, a rational capacity, allows us to reflect on the adequacy of our reasons to believe the testimony of our senses or to follow where desires might lead. Unlike non-rational animals, rational animals can step back and consider what to think and what to do. Reason is what makes this possible for human beings. Boyle mounts a powerful argument against the widespread Anglophone philosophical tendency to treat, treat rational animals as, in effect, primates with thinking caps. Additive theories of rationality, Boyle shows, face difficulties very like the difficulties of explaining mind-body interaction and the problem of explaining the unity of mind and body that haunts some forms of dualism. 
In a tantalizing footnote, Boyle points to Aquinas as a source of inspiration for the arguments against additive theories. Quote, the problems I raise for additive theories of rationality are modeled on difficulties Aquinas raises for views that hold that a rational animal has a sensitive soul that is not intrinsically rational and a further soul in virtue of which it is rational, a position Aquinas associates with Plato, close quote. The alternative picture of rationality that Boyle sketches for us is what he calls the transformative view, the view that our capacities for perception and desire must be themselves informed by rationality in a way that renders them distinct in species, although certainly the same in genus, as the perceptual and desiderative capacities of non-rational animals. Now, Boyle doesn't provide a full-fledged account of a transformative alternative, but mounts a tremendously powerful argument that this is what's needed. According to Boyle, then, Aquinas helps lay the paving stones along the via negativa by which we are alerted to the need for a properly transformative theory of human rationality. My own view is that Aquinas actually developed such a theory. Now, tracing the alternative to additive theories that we find in Aquinas requires taking on board his metaphysics, which may be why Boyle keeps um, Aquinas' positive contribution at a distance. It's hard to engage contemporary Anglophone analytic philosophy in the idiom of Aquinas' metaphysics. And it's virtually impossible on my understanding, at least, to remove all thought of God from the metaphysics. Neither of these points all on its own is reason enough to avoid the metaphysics, of course. The two taken together don't add up to a reason to avoid the metaphysics either. And the metaphysics that Aquinas built supports the arguments that he mounted against the versions of Platonism current in his day, the very arguments that Boyle found so helpful. Um, Aquinas' account informs his discussion of both the varieties of non-human cognition and cognition and his treatment of the difference between merely sentient animals and human beings. It informs his discussion of the differences between higher and lower intellects as well. Aquinas holds with the Aristotelian understanding of, of matter as what can take form and of body as informed matter. In this sense, body, any body actualizes its form. Bodies are, for Aquinas, following Aristotle, substances. And any given substance is an individual in virtue of its substantial form that keeps it numerically identical through some changes. Living things are the paradigmatic instances of substances for Aquinas and Aristotle. And living things come in kinds. The form of any individual living thing is its kind, and the kinds in question organize the activities, parts, and processes of the living things of the relevant kind. The contemporary analytic philosopher who's worked out this in a very powerful way is a guy called Michael Thompson. What Michael Thompson calls a life form and treats by way of careful consideration of the kinds of judgment and understanding that rely upon a grasp of forms of life, Aquinas will treat as soul, a topic for metaphysics, where the soul is the substantial form of a living thing. Following Aristotle, Aquinas gives an account of soul as the principle of unity for a living thing, 
As such, the soul makes the living individual living thing the one thing that it is. If the living thing has parts, then the soul is responsible for both the diversity of its parts and for their order and functioning. If the living thing is an organism, then its body is made to be an individual body by the soul as what unifies the individual and orders and organizes all its activity. Any living thing's substantial form is operative in the whole of that living thing throughout the thing's life. All of this is familiar to anyone who spent any time working with Aquinas. I will take the point about the soul's presence in the whole of the living thing that unifies it in a slightly unusual direction. My aim is to urge that, in, that Aquinas' understanding of the human being, the intellectual animal, provides a transformative understanding of intellect in a sense more radical than the alternative that Boyle was seeking. Looking vastly forward. Sorry about this being choppy. I'm really, really worried about time. Okay. I'm doing okay, though. We've got lots. I just wanted to leave time for questions and such, even though I'm terrified of them. Um, understood in the transformative frame, rationality is actually what makes morality possible for human beings. The, Rationality is what allows us to actually consider alternatives, step back from things that we're sort of drawn to, at, seek the good as good, and so on. Criticize ourselves, all of that. Okay. That we're fallen is what makes morality problematic. Um, and I'm just going to return to a phrase that has oriented some people's work on this topic for a lot of years. That phrase is darkened intellect, disturbed passions, and disordered will. For uh, most of us gathered here today, that phrase points to a fall from grace. For others who occasionally read the newspaper, watch television, or lament things that family members, friends, neighbors, civic leaders, or other people do, the phrase may be no more than a concise description of our lot. So if you pause and pull up your chair alongside those who have no acknowledged stake in theology for a moment, you'll notice that various things about people strike them. Many of these things look to be the effect of how hard it is for us to direct our energies toward long-term lasting good when doing so would prevent us from pursuing more immediate gains, or toward common good when that looks to be at odds with private advantage. This is a way of summarizing the trouble, not just when we lie, cheat, steal, or commit acts like murder, rape, fraud, or torture on however grand a scale, but also in the thousands of little occasions when we're impatient, selfish, moody, ungenerous, overly generous, or foolish. What interests me about these things is not the breathtaking commonality of bad judgment, bad responses, bad habits, and bad deeds. It's rather the extraordinary fact that perfectly ordinary people know better this is the more interesting point, actually. Um, we may not put this knowledge to work in actively seeking to improve our own characters and actions, but we know better. And because we know better, 
we also know to be struck by our fellows' patience, kindness, justice, honesty, and courage. We also use the points summarized in this phrase about darkened intellect, disturbed passions, disordered wills, against ourselves. Anyone who has deployed such, materially, such material self-critically will understand the peculiar form of apparently self-generated and appropriate humility that comes a vivid appreciation of her or his own failings. The only way to make sense of this experience is to suppose that we're not utterly benighted. Something remains, some spark, some bright corner that carries an understanding of the ways in which we are, frankly, a mess by carrying some sense of what things might be if we were well-ordered. Assuming, as seems to me very plausible, that none of us has a lot of lived experience with an entirely well-governed human being, perfectly ordered human being, um, I think we should be at least as struck by the fact that we know better as we are by the fact that we fall short. Um, how did things stand for us before the fall, according to Aquinas? Eileen Sweeney puts the point this way, quote, what is strange about Aquinas' view is that a purely natural state of humankind has strictly speaking before the fall, nature had a, had a kind of supernatural strength, and after that, nature is somewhat, though not radically, depleted, close quote. The supernatural strength was in original justice as a matter of orientation and governance. The human's higher powers were subjected to God, the lower powers to the higher powers, and the body to the soul. I mean, Aquinas adds a fourth subjection in his commentary on the Romans before the fall. Exterior things were subject to humankind such that they served the human, and humans ought not to have been, were not harmed by them, like Adam couldn't have even stubbed his toe. Okay, the supernatural character of the happy estate points to its complex gratuity. Um, a Jesuit from way back when called P. de Letter put the point this way. When St. Thomas treats of the threefold subjection, which is involved in original justice, reason to God, the inferior powers to reason, and the body to the soul, of which the first is the cause of the other two, he distinguishes a double subjection of reason to God, which is natural, another which is a supernatural gift of grace. The latter is necessary in the very creation of man as the root cause of the whole of original justice. The rectitude in which man was created was not natural, that is, flowing from the constituents of nature, it requires its permanent cause. In the prelapsarian, end quote, in the prelapsarian condition, perfect rectitude of the will was possible. In the prelapsarian condition, humans could act on their innate love of God without impeding themselves. This is the sense in which the gift of original justice perfected human nature. It placed our powers in a proper order, given the kinds of creatures that we are. This is what was lost to the species at its ancestral origin through original sin. Um, and 
the problem isn't the problem is that the bits are made to work together and they're still made to work together. They're still made to be cooperative in exactly this way. It's just that that's not automatically the case anymore. That they're made to work together is um, a deep part of why, however problematic, morality remains possible. I'm just going to give you a, a I'm going to close with stuff about the resurrection and beatific union, um, just because that's where we're all headed, by grace, if all goes well. And also because this is a beautiful passage from the compendium that I think people should grab hold of harder more often. Um, In a late work, wrestling with questions of the promised resurrection of one and the same human being as a reunion of form and matter, Aquinas remarks, quote, the numerical identity of the resurrected person is not frustrated on the ground that the corporeity recovered is not numerically the same for the reason that it corrupts when the body corrupts. If by corporeity is meant the substantial form by which a thing is classified in the genus of corporeal substance, such corporeity is nothing else than the soul seeing that there is but one substantial form for each thing. In virtue of this particular soul, this animal is not only animal, but is animated body, and body and also this thing existing in the genus of substance. Otherwise, the soul would come to a body already existing in act, and so would be an accidental form. The subject of a substantial form is something existing only in the potency, not in act. When it receives the substantial form, it is not said to be generated merely in this or that respect, as is the case with accidental forms, but is said to be generated simply, as simply receiving existence. And therefore, corporeity that is received remains numerically the same since the same rational soul continues to exist, close quote. He continues, consequently, since union is a kind of relation and therefore an accident, its numerical diversity does not prevent the numerical identity of the subject, nor, for that matter, does numerical diversity among the powers of sensitive and vegetative soul if they're supposed to have corrupted. For the natural powers existing in the human composite are in the genus of accident, and what we call sensible is derived not from the senses, according as sense is the specific difference constituting animal, but from the very substance of the sensitive soul, which in man is essentially identical with the rational soul. I take it that that Aquinas' treatment of the promised resurrection of the human being and his argument that the resurrection can only be miraculous are of a piece with his understanding of the human being as the intellectual animal and of the substantial form of any human being as active in all of that person's bodily parts and vital processes.
we were talking about the significance. Each of us was worried. She's having these thoughts about it. I've just been kind of like dancing around with some thoughts about the significance of the fact that the resurrected body of Christ still has the signs of terrible wounding on it. She's working it out. My sense is that the fact of the woundedness and suffering of Christ is one of the things that we need, not just as atonement for us, not just as taking on and suffering for us, but as being reborn as a creature that still bears some of the marks of suffering. So I think that that's part of what's really important about the fact that the resurrected Christ is still showing signs. The body is still wounded. You can still put your hand into the holes and such. Not just to convince poor daddy Thomas, but, uh, but also because it matters that we still carry some of the woundedness of our lives, I think. It's not a sign that we somehow not